0: Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious
1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 68th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is, why are we still stuck? I'm joined by Ella Bell-Smith and Stella M. Nicomo. They are the co-authors of Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Ella is a professor of business administration at the Tuck School of Business. She's also the founder and president of Ascent, leading multicultural women to the top. Stella is a professor in the Department of Human Resource Management at the University of Pretoria. She was the founding president of the Africa Academy of Management. Welcome to the show, Ella and Stella.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for the I, invitation. We're very glad to be here.
1: Well, that's very kind of you, say. I am delighted that you accepted the invitation. So let's give you a chance to give us a brief overview of the book before we, we plunge into the questions.
2: Okay. Well, 20 years ago, um, we started out to do research around why we did not understand the experiences of African-American women in the corporate sector, anything you did read about the small number of African American managers focused on men. And the literature that was beginning to grow around white women managers, um, didn't include black women, um, breaking the glass ceiling. I think they interviewed one, I think Ann Morrison interviewed one white black woman, um, so we wanted to, number one, we knew they were there, African-American women. Um, we wanted to, number one, tell the story of how women wound up in the corporate sector. Because women, we were still in the age and time period um, in, in the 80s when you know, many women, teachers, nurses, uh, secretaries, Uh, human resources, but very few, quote unquote, in bottom line business. Um, So, you know, who are these women and what got them to get there, particularly the African-American women? The second thing, once they got into corporate America, how did they navigate? What were their experiences? And then the third thing, what was their relationship with each other? So those were the three areas that we were trying to cover in this book. We interviewed 120 women, life history interviews. So an interview would last anywhere from four hours to 12 hours. Um, we interviewed, uh, an oversample of African American women because so little was known about their lives. Um, we had a cross race team to do the interviews. Um, so we had a multicultural team to work on it. We got funding from the first the Rockefeller Foundation and then from the Ford Foundation and the appropriate university where I was, which included MIT and Yale. Um, So that's how we began. Uh, 20 years ago, the book came out. But we started the research a good eight years before that, collecting the data. So that's a little bit of the history of our separate
1: work. Okay, and you've re-released the book now, and I'm interested in the timing. As they say in Hollywood, a movie is always about the era it depicts and the era in which it was made. So why the reissue now? What does it add? I'm not challenging that you reissued it by any stretch of the imagination, but there must be an impetus for why now and why coming back with this. I mean, it still has all its punch, but why now?
0: Why now, okay, we talk about that in the book. I think the why now is what happened in twenty twenty with the uh murder of George Floyd that went viral and i i call it called attention to that uh race and racism was still an issue, and so as we began to think about that, you know, I think that the interest is. What has happened so far to Black people also in corporate America? To be honest with you, it was not easy for us to get this book reissued because, you know, from our own observations, from our teaching, a lot from elders consulting in the U.S., we knew that the progress, especially of Black women, had not been what it should have been. But, but fortunately, with the murder of George Floyd, I think it placed everything up front. And so it was an opportunity for us then with the new book to contextualize it, meaning what are the implications of it for today? And looking at that, it kind of demonstrates that things have not changed that much. And so this imperative now is, here's another opportunity for organizations, for corporate America, to re To revisit what they've been doing and be perhaps start doing things differently that will really lead to real significant change in the corporate setting, especially putting black women and other women of color into leadership roles, so I think that that is the imperative and there's a lot of motivation for that now,
1: sure, and I think we've seen you know from what happened in Charlottesville. Uh, to I can't breathe. There, There is so much going on here. The, the statistics on the lack of progress and the lack of visibility and bottom line roles for, for women in corporate life, I mean, they're just stunningly low percentages. It leads me to want to ask an, an additional question. Do you have any documentation on how many women of color, particularly African-American women, do get, I guess I'm going to say, half-heartedly recruited by the companies into the companies and then find the reality is unpleasant at best and leave. What kind of what kind of dropout rates are we talking about vis-a-vis retention?
2: The, um, the dropout rates are, are pretty high. I would expect um, so. We have them in the book. I don't have them right in front of me, but the dropout rates are, are not good. The pipeline is not good mm. at all. Yeah, um, they're basically in the bottom ranks of the company and they're not advancing. They're not advancing the way that white women are advancing. And even to some degree, black men are advancing. Um, so what happens is the companies recruit them, but then they wind up going to another for a black woman. She winds up having to go to another company to get the advancement. They often don't get the advancement within their their company. And let me backtrack for one quick second. I think the sure. other reason why this book became um, relevant 20 years is that we had a president named Donald Trump. And I don't mean to get political, but the attack on people, or what I perceive as a Black woman, the attack um, that that administration had on African Americans, particularly African American mm-hmm. women, um, you know, called attention to the fact that we um, still were not in parity, um, not only in the corporate world, but also in society. And I think that's important to, to recognize.
1: Oh, no, I, I absolutely agree. If, if I had the ability to add music as part of the intro here, I think I might have played Aretha Franklin's, you know, <laughs> show, show me a little respect.
2: Oh, yeah, you know? I want to see that movie. <laughs> I want to see. I, I want to see my girl play Aretha, but you're absolutely right. Um, And, you know, people realized what what was happening because we seem to be going backwards rather than front front forward with our racial jargon and our racial belief system.
1: Mm.
2: And can I
0: throw in a statistic you want to?
1: uh, Oh, absolutely.
0: One of the telling statistics about where we are. Great headlines that for the first time, there are 41 women. CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Well, that's nothing to brag about, 41 out of 500. But how <laughs> yeah, many, true enough. How yeah. many black women? Two, two. 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 So what Ellen and I found 20 years ago where the promotion rates for the black women, we actually calculated them, was slower, even though they had the same years of experience and education, sometimes better education. But you know, so we're touting there's 41, but only two of them are black women.
1: Yeah, one one of the first rules of uh, thermodynamics is that closed systems don't operate well, <laughs> and that is that is what we're looking at here. It's a remarkably closed system, particularly given the changing demographics, you know, of know. America and uh, you know of the world. I mean, white people are about 10 percent of the world's population and uh no more than that and yet the ceo list is uh completely different
2: but you know what's scary the yesterday for example they put out uh i saw it on some news outlet that for the first time the first time since the 1970s Mm -hmm. the number of um in our population the number of white people have decreased and i think there is a fear operating here um that does not escape the corporate reality either. That, you know, boy, white people are going to be in decline. Um, Instead of looking at, well, we're becoming more diverse. Mm -hmm. This gives us more creativity, innovation, more spice, if you will. Um, It's not that a group is going to be wiped out. White people are definitely not going to be wiped out in our society. Not, Not at all. But the fear around that, not understanding what power really looks like. Mm -hmm. You're still in all the power. White men are still, many of them, and some white women, are still in very, very powerful positions in our country, quite frankly. And our culture is basically built on a a military, white, male, masculine type of cultural norm. So the reality of it is, you know, even though the numbers are changing, it doesn't mean that our society is going to change. But I get on the subject, I'm sorry. Well, I think, yeah. Okay. Go ahead.
1: Sorry. Oh, no. Go right ahead. I, I mean, I was going to say that I remember Michael Harper, my mentor at Brown University, you know, talking about how, you know, the corporate ranks were monolithic white men because I also contributed to my my uh, forthcoming book, The Term Diversity, a Short White Guy in Senior Management <laughs> uh, because that is so often the, the case. Uh, but, you know, it is that it is a monolithic look. And so instead of decline, yeah, what, what's wrong with a verb like sharing? Yeah, uh, that's the point.
2: That's the point.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's the point I want to make. It's not about replacing white men with black women yeah. and people of color. It's about there's space and room for everyone. And by adding that space and adding new voices, new ideas, it will be better for everyone. So it's not a zero-sum game and You're we right. make it a zero-sum game. Given the problems that we have in today's global world, climate warming, uh, climate warm. Uh, what else? Mm-hmm. The COVID. This is not the first pandemic. The wealth gap. The wealth gap. Inequality. Health. health. We need all of the talent that people can bring to those problems. And and, and I often think, you know, if I were a white man, would I want the burden of trying to solve these problems? (laughs) True.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you're right. It's
0: a load off your shoulders. (laughs) You know, that you have to be a superhero that's going to single-handedly solve all of these problems. No, that is the wrong model of leadership for where we are today. Yeah. It's the wrong one.
1: Totally agree. So you we mentioned fear a moment ago. And in the book, and I think this is courageous and necessary, you you talk about the negative emotions that occur. Uh, We're talking about the relationship, uneasy as it can be at times, between women of color and white women and their experiences. And you mentioned these negative emotions of competition and envy and jealousy, uh, pettiness, scorn, and so forth. So I, I think it's it it's a necessary conversation which is overlooked too often. So let's talk about that glass ceiling, which is what white women might experience versus the concrete wall that women of color experience. So both those two experiences and then the uneasy alliance at times and maybe a lack of alliance at other times.
2: you know it's it's interesting. when we wrote this book, um, it was very clear that a uh, glass ceiling. Uh, At least you could see the other side and the other side could see you. Um, A glass ceiling, there would be one, two, maybe five white women that would break through. Um, They would fall back down. Um, And I can, you know, name different companies where the women fell back down uh, and did not get back up, unlike a white male. Um, But the reality of it is for black women, nobody sees them. They remain invisible, and when they are visible, it's for all the wrong reasons. It's, you know, we can check two box, women and, 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 and race with you. Um, you know, you're still not getting the feedback. You're not getting the sponsor. You're not getting the support. You're not getting the development. You know, I, I teach in many executive programs at Tuck, and I also teach in executive programs at um, Darden. And the minority programs, they're full of people of color. Uh, the regular elite, what I call the elite executive programs, you might have a handful, a small handful of white women. Uh, you might have a black male in there. You, if you're lucky, you have a black women, woman. And it's not just a, 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 a tuck. The reality of it is that black women, women of color, they're not being developed, They question, you know, why is this program so expensive? They do not question sending white men. Um, So when you talk about all those things that are needed for a group to advance, African-American women are often denied those things. Now, it's different when a white woman is in a leadership position and she's sitting at the head of the table and she says, where are the women of color? which is what Ken Chenault did at American Express. Oftentimes, we're not doing this meeting unless I see more people of color. The problem is too few white women do that. Um, why do we think that white women are going to be different in their views towards race than white men? Why, why is that? Um, it is a culture. How do I learn about race? How do I learn about difference? White women and white men learn about race and difference very much the same way. So if a young girl, which is in our, uh, an example from our book, if a young girl is in the car and she's going from New Rochelle to a father's taking the family to a Broadway play, 10 to 1, they're going to have to drive through Harlem. And what does the father tell the little girl and her brother, who's also in the car? All right. Uh, close the windows. Lock the doors. What do they see out the window? A very different reality than the one that they live in. And nobody breaks that down about, let's talk about poverty. Let's talk about the fact that people live in inner cities and why they have to live in inner cities that look like they look. No, we're not going to have this conversation. We're just going to say they're different than us. They're not as good as us. White men and white women learn about race the same way. So yeah, and I, yeah. don't expect white women to be any better at managing and building relationship with across the racial line. And quite frankly, they are a little bit more competitive because they look at a black woman and well, she's got race and gender. So I've got to prove that I can beat her. I've got to prove that I'm better than her. And too often, white women don't support white women. You know, these are two little girls that did not play necessarily in the sandbox. Now, let's give it a here, too. Or let's update it. We have a granddaughter. She's 10. Last night over dinner, we're talking about at camp how the little white girls want to come over and touch their hair. And how come your hair is different? And how do you braid your hair? Do you wash your hair? And, and And her 10-year-old response. This doesn't start when you're in corporate America. This starts early in our lives and it's still happening.
1: Sure. And it's a question of, you know, shared experiences. And actually, you know, I have spoken to diversity learning and you can just see, um, frankly, white people sitting back and they're waiting for it to be over. And there's no follow on and there's no predecessor to that one hour, one and a half hour session. Um to the contrary, I can remember once we were coming back from New Orleans. I was uh, in seventh grade. Uh, the freeways being fixed, so we have a detour through Mississippi.
2: Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about.
1: And I am looking out the window because these kids who are on, you know, sidewalks that are made of wood. They're not concrete. The homes are, you know, so poor. Right. And exactly. I am, ju- and I am just shocked that this is part of America. Uh, and my parents don't want to say a word about it. And I'm like, oh my God, this is this is the moment of the day. This is a complete revelation to me, and you're not acknowledging it. And um,
2: And nobody, nobody talks about it and, and you yeah. know it's 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 hard. You know, And I think we need a different model. Mm-hmm. The diversity models that we're using now and the inclusion models of of trying to uh, intervene, I don't think they're. Um, I don't. I know they're not
1: working. Um, yeah, no. I, I believe a, you have to get. I believe you have to get to the experiential. I
2: you, did, you, yeah. You, yes. Um, you you have to stuff. do
1: things together. You have to share things together. You have to come to understand each other through something that links you. That's not mm-hmm. just verbiage.
2: But you know, we did something that was verbiage yesterday at Tuck, and Tuck is not known for having great numbers of minority people. Okay, because we're in Hanover, New Hampshire. Um, But yesterday, Matt Slaughter, who's the dean, and I, well, actually two days ago, um, we did a session, uh, a three and a half hour session on race, talking about how each of us learned about race, talking about Mm -hmm. how our relationship, because relationship is key, had developed over the course of us knowing each other um, and what we had learned. And we took the students through an experience. How did you learn about race? What did your mommy and your daddy teach you? How did you interact? And you know what I learned? If you continue to build on relationship first, then you can begin to talk about dismantling systematic racism and sexism. Mm-hmm. But there's got sure. to be a real, and it's not a kumbaya, it's not an international potluck, it's not here's all the history. You've got to have relationship first. To then sure. take the next knowledge So our next step We're doing a uh, field trip In December Guess where we're going Montgomery, Alabama Take them to the museums now The Justice Museum The, slavery, yep. the, the lynching memorial Now that we have relationship Let's take it to the next level This has got to be done in an incremental way Where people can learn Share their sadness Share their shock share their anger, share their disbelief, their difference of opinion, if you will, to be able to really do the work that's needed.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, I I think that's so valuable. I I had spoken to both of you offline and mentioned that uh, my family took me to Dachau, the concentration Mm -hmm. camp, when I was a seven-year-old boy. And I remember actually having my hand on one of the remaining ovens and then there was these large gl- blow- up photographs with the the mounds of teeth and sh- you know collections of shoes taken from the victims and that experience steered me and changed unfortunately probably all I view human nature and mm-hmm. people who have power and how absolute they can be in their degradation of others but yes the lynching center is something I think we need to you know all sorts of people need to get there
2: Brian and, is just uh, amazing. He is Yeah, and
1: what and what you just said about the sharing, you know, to me that's a different category than verbiage. Yep. Because you were you were telling stories, you were building relationships. Yep. Yep. And uh, I've got a PhD in English once upon a time and we always said believe the tale, not the teller. Yeah. Because we're not, we're often blind to our own blind spots. But yeah. the tale has a lot of truth to it. The
2: tale, and, and the thing is, who's telling the story? Yeah, Because if it was just little old me mm. standing up in front of them, here's how I learned about race it'd be okay, here we go. It's, a, what, <laughs> it's what they call a single story. And, yep. Oh, that doesn't make impact, that doesn't make change. But when I looked at the white men who were coming into our, our MBA program, they were looking at Matt like he was a night, nice, like, wow. You know, they were so impressed with him uh, because it was like, uh, we don't believe the dean is spending time talking about his personal life. Uh, Leadership looks a lot different when you are really doing inclusive leadership and belonging leadership. It looks a lot different.
1: Sure. And, And it has a different feel to it. Yes, it does. When it's actually happening. Because we we don't think our feelings, we feel them, and we're going to (laughs) sense there's a difference there. Exactly. Yeah. So in your book, I mean, there are, you know, we're not going to be able to give it full justice here in in our 30 minutes or so, but there is a part of the book that's with flashbacks and flashpoints. And, you know, you have the voices of all these people that you interviewed. And, uh, you know, if we had 12 hours, we would cover many more stories. But uh, in the time that we do have, I think it would be a terrible shame. I'd like to have each of you at least take one person so we don't miss this part of the book. Ooh. Um, each of you maybe talk about one particular interview or some aspects of it that really resonated for you and, and contributed to the book's richness.
2: I got mine. I okay. Oh, you go first. Make sure it's not mine. Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I don't think
0: it's yours. The one I remember, you know, because we did a lot of these interviews, we had a team, but I remember yep. the story of, uh, I can't think of the, the center name we gave her. I can think of the real name, which I cannot reveal. But sure. she she talked about coming in as a solo, which is still a phenomenon. And she talks about, graphically, about the first day in her new, in the company where she walks into the company cafeteria. And she just painted this picture of looking around the room and she didn't see anyone who looked like her. And she says it was a room full of stoic-looking white men who looked at, it, looked at her like she had leprosy. And she thought, uh-huh. oh my God, what have I done? And so part of her challenge now is what do I do as the only one of my kind? And the reason I flag that story is there's just too much of that going on where the first the black woman is still the first person. And I don't think people really understand that experience of being an outsider
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, yeah. and what that challenge is for you. So you may be well educated, but that uh, psychological isolation it's sort of like almost becoming in as an alien. Mm-hmm. And so, and she had no one to turn to to tell her, okay, do this, do this. And she said there wasn't a single smiling face who said, okay, come over here and join us. And, and too often that experience is still being repeated where I think we'll know that we have achieved diversity and inclusion when we don't have any more of those stories of this is the first person in. This is the first black woman,
1: and then yeah, a- no, even even that term solo. I mean, you you said that, and I just thought of like a person in a prison cell.
0: Yeah, you know, there, there may
1: not be literally walls around, but there are emotionally psychologically.
0: Yeah, almost like solitary confinement, and so you're yeah. on your your yeah. and 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 if you if you sink, but what's interesting, Dan, and I'll let Ella tell hers. The problem with that solo status we talk about in the book. Okay, but if you fail, everybody notices it, and then they attribute it to every other black woman. We had one. She didn't work out, so now we're reluctant to bring more on, and that's also the generalizing. Instead of seeing the individual, yeah. so that's Maya, Ella. What's yours?
2: You know, I, I, I like to show a, a contrast, a, a comparison. and This happens to be one of my favorite stories. Uh, and it also represents intersectionality. Uh, we talk about race, but it's always race, gender, race, social class. Um, they always intersect. Um, and when I think about my case, you can take two girls, one white, one black. And you take the white girl who grows up in a very poor community, poor family. Her mother remarries um, an alcoholic. The mother dies from cancer while this girl is in high school. Um, The stepfather wants nothing to do with her and literally pawns her off on the mother's sisters, who actually put her in servitude. She has two dresses, one that she has to wash Um, to where the next day to school, um, she does all, she does the cooking. She takes care of her cousins. I mean, she has, she's not living for free or nobody's encouraging her. She's literally taking care of and cleaning and, you know, she's the Cinderella. Um, what's real interesting too, at school, she doesn't have money for lunch and she winds up going to the library to read rather than going to the principal or getting any support from any of her teachers um, because she doesn't want to embarrass herself. Um, compare this to uh, oh, yeah, one last thing. She's the valedictorian of her class. <laughs> okay? She's smart. And the principal tells her uh, it's better for you to get a job, become a secretary, see if you can work your way up. But there's no money for you to go to school and, you know, you just need to go get a job. All right. Look at a poor black girl. Grows up in the South. Mother's a sharecropper. There are several siblings, but all with different fathers. Um, She is a smart little child, too. She spends time after school helping her mother clean white people's houses. She's got to stand on a box to wash the dishes. Okay. Um, She's... Very smart. The principal makes a home visit to her mother to explain to her mother that this child should go to college because she's just that smart. Mother says, I don't have money for that. Principal says, I'll pay for that. Mother says, I can't read and write. Principal says, we'll do the applications. This girl gets accepted into college. This girl doesn't have to worry about clothing because the school as well as the community, the church community, um, provides a wardrobe, not a great wardrobe, but a wardrobe for this girl to go to college. Um, she's not ashamed. She's not embarrassed. Oh, yeah, she gets lunch at school. What do each of these girls learn? The white girl learns to shut up and work hard and just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Nobody has empathy. Your story is not important. It's what you do and you're on your own. So she's going to be a little bit more competitive. She's going to isolate herself a little bit. And she's going to make sure that she does all the work necessary. She's going to perform, perform, perform. And she's not going to think too much about building relationships across racial lines. Definitely not. Little black girl, what does she learn? We're all in this together. I have nothing to be ashamed of. People are proud of me. People help you. How can I reach back and help somebody else? How can I tell my story so that other people can recognize that we all come from different backgrounds? I'm going to work, but I know the value of relationship. Apply each of these, think of each of these women in a leadership role because leadership is a cumulative life experience, right? It's not just when we get anointed the leader. Leadership the views, the values, what we base our, our, our perception of leadership is based on our life experiences. So Absolutely. how do these two women lead? That's the power of our separate ways. Um, we really understand the book is not so much about, well, let's understand racism between black and white women. Mm. The book is about how do our life journeys impact how we see the world how we manage, how we lead, and what changes do we have to make so that there is equity across the board. That's the key story. And the sad news is that the story for making the difference and for making the change has not changed in 20
1: years. Well, I, I cannot think of a more powerful close, and effect, than that. Um, I had other questions, and we have very little time. But that—that that is a very powerful statement, and I think it nicely encapsulates what the book is about uh, in its ability to indicate the richness and the very humanness of this journey and the, and the pain and the, the, the lack of talent that gets realized and could be brought into the fold and just too often is not. Um, so it, it's this is important stuff. It's important work. And uh, I'm so glad that both of you have done the book and redone the book and don't give up the fight. Uh, so this has been episode number 68. It is Why Are We Still Stuck? My guests have been Ella Bell Smith and Stella Nicomo. They are the co-authors of Our Separate Ways, Black and White Women and the Struggle for Professional Identity. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com. Or you can go to the New Books Network, look up Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and you will see the other episodes. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I chose one from Janelle Monet, who says, Even if it makes others uncomfortable. I will love who I am. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.